Second John, Third John, and Jude we'll be covering tonight. Three books for the price of one. It's like one of those paperbacks, you know, you get the three books in one. Just a prayer request or two before we um, get into our Bible study tonight. First of all, don't forget to be praying for our women's conference coming up. Uh, This will uh, be an encouragement and be a source of blessing to women from not only our church, but from churches all around us. And let's keep in prayer uh, the women's conference. Uh, Please be praying for Kathy and for Kelly and for all the other speakers at the conference and that the Lord will just bless in wonderful ways. And be in prayer, if you would, this week for me. Uh, I've been asked by Pastor Chuck to help coordinate and encourage uh, the Calvary Chapel pastors that are planning churches here in the southeastern part of the United States. And uh, along with that, um, we're trying to get together some of the other uh, pastors that have been doing this for a while uh, in Tennessee and Arkansas and South Carolina and so forth. And all these guys are going to come in this week. We're going to have about seven or eight guys come in uh, this coming week. We're going to have a meeting and pray together and seek the Lord together as to ways that we can encourage other Calvary Chapel pastors who are planning Calvary chapels. It's not an easy thing to do, especially here in the Deep South. And so uh, we're just going to pray and seek the Lord for ways we can encourage and help and strengthen. And if you could pray for us, I would greatly appreciate that. And I believe that's about it. Second John, Lord, again, we ask that you bless tonight as we study your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I ran across a tongue-in-cheek list entitled, The World's Shortest Books. The World's Shortest Books. The list includes the following pretend titles. America's Most Popular Lawyers. That's real tiny. Different ways to spell the name Bob. Here's another one of the world's shortest books. French Hospitality. How about this one? Great Moments in Atlanta Falcons Football History. Couple of pages. Here's a good one. The Loganville Travel Guide. Real tiny little book. Everything men know about women, it's probably on one page. Everything women know about men, maybe another page. How about this one? Barry Bonds' tips on bunting. Or this one, The Engineer's Guide to Fashion. If you're an engineer, forgive me for that one. Here's another good one. The Amish Phone Directory. Real short little book. And last but not least, the world's shortest books, Pastor Sandy's jokes that are actually funny. Real short book. All of these titles would obviously make for a very short book, as are the three books that we're going to study tonight. Second John and Third John are actually the shortest books in the Bible. Combined, both letters are a mere 27 verses and just 500 words. Jude is also a short book indeed. You could call tonight's letters the fruit of the loom letters, since all three books are definitely briefs. <laughs> briefs. Tonight we're going to study some biblical briefs. John begins Second John by introducing himself. He calls himself the elder. Second John and Third John were probably the last New Testament books written. When John penned them, he was nearly a hundred years old. He was last, the last of the apostles to still be alive. Needless to say, John's stature in the Christian community, was unsurpassed. He was not just an elder, as he 
says it here. He was the elder. John was an elder with a capital E. He writes to the elect lady and her children. Now, some Bible teachers believe that the elect lady is actually a sister church. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And so it's possible that the lady here and her children are actually titles for a church. It's more probable in my mind that John had a specific person in mind when he wrote this letter. Perhaps both ideas are true. It could be that he was writing to a devout Christian lady whose vibrant witness had produced and birthed a church full of spiritual children. John writes, To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And here's the theme of Second John. Love in truth. First John told us that if we love God, we will love our brother. But here we're told that real love never ignores the truth. God's love is always in harmony with God's truth. If ever love causes us to ignore the truth, if in the name of love we tolerate or gloss over or accept some falsehood, we're not exhibiting the true love of God. God's love affirms and supports God's truth. There are a growing number of churches today who've adopted a unity at all costs mentality. In their minds, nothing is as important as love and peace and unity between us. Apparently, those churches have forgotten the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51 through 53, Jesus told us, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In other words, Jesus is going to draw a line in the sand. He is going to confront us with the truth of God. And it's up to us to make a decision that invariably will put us at odds with folks who make the opposite choice. Jesus says friction is going to erupt in the very same family, when confronted with my truth. As one philosopher put it, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you mad. To insist on unity at all costs denies the reality and the impact of God's truth when it's delivered. Let me get more specific. To suggest that Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Mormons should just forget about their differences and love one another as brothers is absolutely ridiculous. It's a notion that flies in the face of what the Bible teaches. As Christians, we should love all men and we should want to lead them to Jesus. But for us to embrace people who deny the Lord as brothers is to deny the truth of God's word. Real love never denies God's truth. To say that all that really matters is your love for other people is to be totally naive to what the Bible teaches. The notion that truth is irrelevant, that love is all that counts, is straight from the pit of hell. Guys, understand, your doctrine will determine your destiny. What you believe is important. Believing it is not enough. It's not just that faith is necessary. It's faith in what? It's the object of our faith that saves us. Faith needs to be placed in God's truth. That's what saves us. Faith and love have to be grounded in truth. And so John writes, To the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. In verse 2, John says of the truth, Because of the truth which abides in us, And will be with us forever. Notice truth is forever. Notice that. Truth is eternal. It doesn't shift from age to age, from generation to generation. It's unaffected by popular opinion or social mores. You see, real truth is absolute truth. Apparently, John had bumped into some of the believers this elect lady had discipled. And they were doing well. 
And in verse 4, John rejoices for them in her. Often, you can measure the quality of a leader by the integrity and maturity of his followers. A person who walks in truth is a person who was weaned on truth. John makes that note in verse 4. In chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, John says that his emphasis has not changed. That his ageless exhortation is to love one another. Theologian Richard Niebuhr once put it this way, The great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. You know, we're always looking for new tactics. What we need to do is to rediscover simple truths. It's the simple truths that will set the world on fire. It's not new, but it's true. And I'll tell you one truth, that if taken literally, if taken radically by me and you, we'll change our world. Love in action will change our world. Love one another. You can't get a more radical concept and idea and revolutionary thought. John says in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. It was the homespun philosopher Mark Twain who said, A lie runs around the world while truth is putting on her shoes. In other words, bad news travels faster than good news. And this is also true in the church. It's sad, but it seems that false doctrine spreads like wildfire. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he warned them about being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. False doctrine is constantly blowing through the church and we need to be on guard against it. Warren Wearsby quoted a pastor of a successful church who said it this way. He says, if I took my eyes off this work for 24 hours and stopped praying, it would be invaded before we knew it. We need to be vigilant in the pursuit and protection of sound doctrine. And I like verse 8. He says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive A full reward. John labored in his ministry to lay a solid foundation for the church. But he knew it could be lost. If the individual members of the church neglected their responsibilities, didn't do the things necessary for the preservation of that church. You know, I look at all that God has done in our church. And I certainly rejoice for it. But I think we also need to realize that with blessing comes responsibility. And if we don't serve and give and encourage and support and do our part, we can lose the things for which we have worked. If we shirk our responsibility, if we just sort of kick back and say, well, I've done my part. My time in the nursery's over. I did that when my kids were younger. I gave money to the last project. I've already served as an usher. I'm past that now. Hey, it's somebody else's turn now. If we take that kind of attitude, if we pass the buck, we can lose what we have worked to obtain. Look to yourselves, John says, that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. And verse 9 reminds us, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Such a critical verse, crucial verse. Guys, it is important that you believe rightly about Jesus Christ. If you're not right about Jesus, you can't be right with God. Verse 10 tells us, If anyone comes to you, And does not bring this doctrine. Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. In the early days of Christianity, many churches lacked adequate leadership. And so traveling apostles went from church to church, place to place, in order to fill in the gaps. 
Individual Christians would put these men up, provide their needs, support their ministries. But in the name of love, some of the believers apparently were showing this kindness toward false teachers. They were aiding and abetting the deceiver. And John says, whoa, wait, stop. Let's say two Mormon missionaries pull up in front of your house on their bicycles. It's a hot July day. And their shirts are soaked with sweat. And you invite them in to cool off in the air conditioning and to take a nap. John would rebuke you for doing that. Don't aid them. Don't encourage them. Don't make their way easier. They're out spreading false doctrine. And you shouldn't do anything that would help them recharge their batteries. Now, I don't think John would mind if you invited them into your house for discussion. If you tried to witness to them. But don't make their way easier. Don't invite them in in order to help them. Don't feed them a meal. And then offer to drive them from house to house. John warns us not to unintentionally collaborate with the enemy. Your attempts to love a false prophet may help him spread his deception. Don't be mean to him, I guess. But when he comes to your door, don't moisten lips that lie with your lemonade. Second John was written to the elect lady, while third John was addressed to a man named Gaius. The Greek name Gaius means on earth. And the message that John sends to Gaius would indeed imply all, to all those who live on planet earth. Third John is a letter from the elder to the earthlings, calling all earthlings. Verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now John's words were a simple greeting common to both believers and unbelievers in the first century. Greek scholar Gordon Fee, he calls John's words here in verse 2 the standard form of greeting in a personal letter of antiquity. And yet what was intended by John as an innocent greeting has been misconstrued today by many prosperity preachers who teach that the Bible guarantees every believer material wealth and physical health. Just as your soul prospers, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be healthy. They've taken John's wish for Gaius and made it God's guarantee for all believers. And this is a gross misapplication. Oral Roberts says that when he stumbled across 3 John chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, he turned and he said to his wife, Evelyn, now this means that we're supposed to prosper. He says his whole Christian experience Sense has grown out of his understanding of 3 John 2. And I think that's tragic. Because I believe he's misinterpreted this passage. You see, the Bible is full of devout men and women who didn't prosper in an earthly manner. And yet they walked committedly, faithfully with God. In the Bible, godly people do get sick. They get sick just like sinners. Some are poor. We both live in a germ-infested world, both sinners and saints alike, and we do get sick. We are poor at times. We do struggle in this life. What John here wishes for Gaius is not a guarantee for all believers. It's a common greeting, really. Gordon Fee again writes, To extend John's wish for Gaius to refer to financial and material prosperity for all Christians of all times is totally foreign to the text. I agree. In verse 3, John mentions that Gaius is a brother who walks in truth. Earl Weaver was a longtime manager for the Baltimore Orioles baseball team. And once Earl threw a temper tantrum in the dugout, he started knocking over coolers and throwing anything that he could grab. Also on the team at the time was a born-again Christian by the name of Pat Kelly. And after Weaver had pitched his fit, Pat spoke up and he said, Coach, I hope you learn to walk with the Lord. 
And that's when we were snapped back. And I hope you learn to walk with the bases loaded. Well, throughout the Bible, the Christian life is referred to as a walk. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in the Spirit. We're to walk by faith. We're to walk as children of light. Our life with Christ is not a run, nor is it a crawl. It's a walk. You know, when you run, you lose focus. You go past things you ought to be seeing. When you crawl, you have no perspective. You can't look up. You can't see. But when you walk, when you walk, you focus on the person you're walking with. And that person needs to be Jesus Christ. A walk denotes a consistent and steady and forward progression. It's one step at a time. There's a gentle leading when we walk. The time spent walking is refreshing and rejuvenating. To walk in truth is to continue learning, continue applying the truths of God's Word to our everyday life. And in verse 4, John hopes that all of us will walk in truth. In fact, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And let me tell you as a pastor, I have no greater joy than to watch the people under my ministry progress and continue in their walk with Jesus. What a thrill to see folks get saved, learn the truth, begin to grow, and then start to serve. Nothing encourages me more than to hear that the people of Calvary Chapel walk in truth. In verses 5 and 6, John commends Gaius for giving to the saints. Apparently, he had supported ministers who had gone out in Jesus' name. And we're told that due to Gaius' generosity, these ministers went out taking nothing from the Gentiles. I'll never forget the first time that I came across that verse. It was our first trip through the Bible. The church was very young at the time, a couple of years old. And we were occupying a building on a temporary basis. The owner, in fact, wasn't even charging us rent. We were just sort of meeting there. But after reading John's words here to Gaius, I felt convicted because in my mind we were taking from the Gentiles. We were drawing worldly support for a spiritual venture. And I felt it was our responsibility, the responsibility of God's people, His church, to provide for God's work. And so the next week after reading this passage, we started sending a check, an unsolicited check, to our landlord. It was interesting. Before we sent that check, he didn't want to sign a lease with us. He, he, he would let us meet there for a few weeks, but he wasn't going to sign a lease. But when we started sending him that check, apparently he realized we had some money. And he said, hey, yeah, I'll sign a lease with you. And I think it was kind of neat. I think the Lord honored us doing that by then blessing us with a more permanent situation. I believe the Lord blessed our step of faith. I do believe, though, strongly that the church doesn't need the world's help. That we should take nothing from the Gentiles. The church doesn't need the government grants. We don't need to dip into the community chest. I believe that God wants to fund His work through His people. He reserves for believers in Jesus the joy of giving and supporting His work. In verse 9, John tells us, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, does not receive us. Notice that, Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Oh, Diotrephes. Did you know that the average American eats 87 hot dogs a year? 87 hot dogs a year. Well, Diotrephes, he may not have ever eaten a hot dog, but grab the mustard because he was a hot dog. He was a spiritual hot dog. Diotrephes loved the spotlight. He was the neon Dion of the church. He was haughty, and he loved to run the show. It reminds me of a comment that Woodrow Wilson once made of a proud associate. He said, he was the only man I ever knew who could strut while sitting down. You ever met anybody like that? A Diotrephes. 
Diotrephes could strut. He was a power monger. He was the type of person who had to be in control. And therefore, he learned how to manipulate and intimidate and dominate. And when he came into the church, he brought along his attitude. Call him Diotrephes the dictator. He was the self-appointed church sheriff. He thought nothing could go on in his town, even in Jesus' name, without his approval. And the lust for preeminence made Diotrephes jealous. He was threatened by the ministry of other believers. And that's why he refused to receive John, we're told. In fact, verse 10 tells us that he made vicious slurs in an attempt to discredit John. Diotrephes was the party boss and he didn't like John's infringing on his turf. Bible expositor A.T. Robertson once wrote an article for a Southern Baptist magazine. He wrote a story depicting the conduct of Diotrephes without naming him. In the weeks following the article, 25 deacons from various Baptist churches throughout the state wrote letters to the editor canceling their subscriptions to the magazine. They all claimed that Robertson had been pointing his finger at them. It's sad. But there are a lot of churches today that are still plagued by diatrophies. Hey, when a church develops a boss, it loses much of its blessing. When a single person tries to run the show, when one person dictates to people and to God what they can and can't do, the work of the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched. Jesus told us in Matthew 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. We as Christians should not be like the Gentiles. Christian leaders should be servants, not sheriffs, not sergeants, disciples, not dictators. The challenge of a spiritual leader is to lead and not drive, inspire and not dominate, cause respect and not fear, win support and not opposition. There's only one master. There's only one boss in this house, and his name is Jesus Christ. Verse 11 tells us, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Instead of imitating Diotrephes, we need to be like Demetrius. Verse 12 tells us about Demetrius. Demetrius has a good testimony from all, and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Nothing is said of Demetrius other than he was a good example. And yet, that's a mouthful. Contrasted with Diotrephes, Demetrius was a true servant leader, a true example to the body of Christ. The book of Jude begins, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Two Judes are actually prominent in the Gospels. One is the Apostle Jude, and then there is Jude, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. This Jude was probably Jesus' half-brother. In John chapter 7, verse 5, you remember that prior to the resurrection, even Jesus' brothers and sisters didn't believe in Him. But when they saw that His brother had conquered death, All their doubts were dispelled. When the evidence was in, it was finally confirmed that, yes, Jesus was truly the Son of God. And in Acts chapter 15, we discover that one of Jesus' brothers, James, became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. It seems that his brothers, after his resurrection, believed and trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And here Jude identifies himself by his relation with this church leader, James. Now, it's interesting. If Jude had been a name dropper, he could have introduced himself, Jude, the brother of our Lord Jesus. But instead, he says, the brother of James and the bondservant of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? It's a show of humility. For more than a sibling, Jesus was Jude's savior. Rather than a brother, Jude is a bondservant. You remember the bondservant was the slave who, after gaining his freedom, continued to serve his master, not out of obligation, 
but out of love. Guys, we too are bound to our Lord Jesus. Jesus holds a title deed to the heavens and the earth, and His Lordship demands our allegiance. But once you know Jesus, His grace and His gentleness and His mercies and His love towards you, desire replaces duty. We end up serving the Lord Jesus, not because we have to, but because we want to. We become bond servants or love servants of Jesus Christ. Jude writes, to those who are called and sanctified or set apart by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Guys, we are called, reserved, and preserved in Christ Jesus. In verse 3, Jude begins the body of his letter. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In in other words, initially, Jude's desire was to write about our common salvation, to just describe the blessings of God, all that's offered to us in Christ Jesus. But another more urgent issue pressed upon his heart. And in verse 4, he tells us why. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude had detected certain men, ungodly men, obviously false teachers, who were denying the truth about God and His grace. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter warned the believers, there will be false teachers among you. There will be. It will happen. Jude tells them that these false teachers are already here. And he directs his letter to encourage his readers to contend earnestly or to fight for the truth that has been given to them. Recently, I read some interesting statistics. Among Americans, 40% agree with this false statement. All religious faiths teach equally valid truths. You realize that 40% of Americans believe that? 38% agree with this. It doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons. That's almost four out of every ten Americans. 34% agree with this erroneous statement. The Bible is not totally accurate in all that it teaches. 53% accept... All people pray to the same God or spirit, no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. Do you realize 53% of people believe that? And then 55% concurred. If a person is generally good or does enough good things for others during their lifetime, they will earn a place in heaven. These are heretical statements. Heresies. And yet over half of Americans believe these things. As a matter of fact, among Americans... The most quoted Bible verse is, God helps those who help themselves, which is not a verse of Scripture at all. It's a saying from Thomas Jefferson. And yet 82% of Americans claim that is their favorite Bible verse. (laughs) Guys, the churches in America have done a very poor job of contending for the faith. And yet Jude says we need to contend earnestly. The Greek word translated contend means to struggle. We need to be willing to wrestle for the truth of the gospel. I'll never forget the little bit of wrestling I did in junior high. My time on the mat was the longest three minutes I've ever spent in my life. It was intense and grueling and exhausting. And when the whistle blew, I was completely and totally drained, totally spent. But did you know we need to be just as zealous and sacrificial and intense when it comes to our commitment to preach and to defend God's Word? Notice too, Jude tells us to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, God is adding no new truth today. Did you know that? The truth of God has been delivered once and for all to the saints. The scripture taught by Jesus and reaffirmed by his 12 apostles 
is the truth that has been given by God once for all. The Bible is God's authoritative word to mankind, all mankind in all generations. And we need to contend earnestly for that truth. Jude continues in verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this. Notice this letter of Jude is a reminder of what had already been written. And if you go back and compare Jude with 2 Peter chapter 2, you'll be shocked by the similarities. In fact, many biblical scholars believe that Jude actually borrowed from Peter's letter. And don't be shocked by that, that one biblical author might borrow from another. Here's sort of an inside trade secret. Pastors borrow from each other all the time. And they don't think anything about it. Did you hear about the guy preparing to teach a Bible study who was determined to be original or nothing? And he turned out to be both. It's been said originality is the art of concealing your sources. All truth is God's truth. It originates from Him. And if something God gives me to say helps you, then I encourage you to use it to help others. You don't have to worry about quoting me. I probably stole it from somebody else anyway. As a matter of fact, if you want to communicate something that I say, here's how you do it. The first time you say it, you say, you know, Pastor Sandy once said. Then the second time you use it, you say, as a man once said. And then the third time you use it, you say, as I've always said. That's how it works. Jude warns us that false teachers will come. And those they deceive will be judged with them. And that's an an interesting thought. That the person deceived by the false teacher is guilty as well. That's why we need to contend earnestly for the faith. That's why you are responsible for knowing what's in this book just as well as I am. If a false teacher comes and you allow them to deceive you, if you don't know the truth yourself, then you're as guilty as the person who's fostered the deception. And he illustrates this with several examples. And the first is the generation that God delivered from Egypt. He says that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You see, the Hebrews, too, had a bad habit of listening to the wrong people. You remember they first listened to that Edward G. Robinson guy, you know, a little twerp in the movie who kept contradicting Moses. I don't know if Edward G. Robinson was really with them in the wilderness, but that there were a lot of probably a lot of Edward G. Robinsons out there with them. And then later there was the rebellion of Korah. And at the Jordan River, you remember, they listened to the ten spies who doubted rather than Joshua and Caleb who had faith. And as a result, they perished. Why? Because they listened to the wrong people. Because they bought into false doctrine. Another example, in verse 6, we're told, are the angels who did not keep their proper domain. Peter recounts this story in the context of the days of Noah. We can go back to Genesis chapter 6. And there we're told, Now it came to pass, the sons of God, which is a biblical synonym for angels. These angels saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now Jude's phrase, did not keep their proper domain, supports the idea that fallen angels somehow crossed a barrier and engaged in sexual relations with mortal women. The illicit unions perverted humanity. We think, why did God go to the trouble of destroying all the earth 
There must have been some kind of serious perversion truly going on in the days before the flood. And I believe it was this angelic perversion of the human race, not angelic but demonic, that fallen angels, demons, were actually crossing these barriers and were creating a race of freaks or giants, as the Bible calls them. And this called God, caused God to take drastic measures and to destroy the earth with water. The third example of God's judgment on evil is Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7, Having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude notes here their sexual perversion. They went after strange flesh or homosexuality. It was the cause of Sodom's destruction and downfall. Guys, despite what the world today says, homosexuality is abnormal. It's a sin against God's plan for men and women and for society. Homosexuals need to be embraced with God's love and invited to repent of their sin and follow Jesus Christ. But their practices are abnormal and sinful and abhorrent in the eyes of God. Jude's point, though, is that Sodom and its citizens had started out blessed with tremendous advantages. And yet they failed to honor God and obey His will. And as a result, they were judged as a consequence. Take all three of Jude's examples here and they teach us to avoid bad counsel. Don't rebel and go your own way. Remember, with privilege comes responsibility. In verse 8, Jude returns to the false teacher's who had appeared in the church. And he says, Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. In other words, they have no decency. They have no respect for authority. These people are arrogant and haughty and pretentious. They have no fear or humility. And Jude warns them. Notice this. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Notice Michael respected even his enemy. Guys, when we encounter the devil... We do need to show some respect for his power. Now, certainly we don't want to like him. We certainly don't have to fear him. But a wise man shows respect. Though sinful to the core, the devil is an angelic being or once was and has supernatural strength. And on my own, I am no match for him. But in Christ... He is no match for me. And that's why Michael didn't begin to slander and didn't begin to shout vicious threats. Rather, he resisted the devil in a humble manner. Here's what Michael did. Michael put Jesus between he and the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And that's what we need to do. Here's good advice for you and me. Here's the proper balance. Respect keeps me humble and wary of my enemy, whereas reliance upon God keeps me confident in Christ Jesus. Hey, whenever you encounter Satan, always keep the Lord between you and the devil. The Lord rebuke you is the appropriate response. You listen to PTL and some of those crazy guys on on the television, and they're shouting at the devil and screaming and calling him all kinds of names and insulting him and... Wait a minute. Not even Michael, the archangel, did that. Hey, the Lord rebuke you. Keep Jesus between you and the devil. In verse 11, Jude gives three more examples warning us not to fall away from the truth that's in Christ. Here are three dangers that you and I need to avoid at all cost. The way of Cain... The error of Balaam for profit and the rebellion of Korah. Boy, we could do a whole Bible study on all three tonight. But understand, all three men started in a good place, but then wandered from God. The way of Cain, remember? It was anger, and he killed his brother. The error of Balaam, remember what it was? It was greed. 
You know, he wanted to get that buck, that extra dollar. And the rebellion of Korah, it was jealousy. He was jealous of Moses and his authority. And guys, anger, greed, and jealousy are pitfalls that can sidetrack us in our spiritual journey. We need to avoid them at all costs. Jude calls these false prophets spots in your love feasts. The word in verse 12 translated spots referred to an underwater reef. And if the captain doesn't steer the ship around the reef, he can sink the ship. And if you don't learn to steer around anger and greed and jealousy, you can sink a church. Yes, you can. Be careful of these pitfalls. Jude says, for these are spots in your love feasts. The love feast was the church's weekly potluck. It was a feast in the early church, a feast where the Christian community gathered together to enjoy a meal with one another. It was a time of physical refreshment and spiritual fellowship. It was a beautiful time together, culminating with communion. And yet the attitudes embodied in these false teachers were spoiling even the love feast. They were spots on their love feast. Listen to the images that Jude uses to describe these false teachers he's talking about. Serving only themselves. He calls them clouds without water. In other words, they promise a blessing, but they end up a blight. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead. Despite multiple opportunities to bear fruit, they end up barren. He calls them raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. In other words, there's a lot of motion and activity to their ministry. But there's nothing of eternal value that results. They're all foam and no fruit. Wandering stars, he calls them, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. In other words, they're like shooting stars. They dart onto the scene for a short time, but then they sail off into oblivion. Reminds me of the woman who went on a new diet, a garlic diet. Every day when she woke up, she ate a garlic sandwich to start her day. And in the end, she didn't lose any weight, not even an ounce, but she sure did look a lot smaller from a distance. (laughs) Hey, that's what Jude says about these false teachers. They looked good. They had style. But they lacked spiritual maturity and substance. They look good from a distance. But when you got up close, you realize, hey, this guy's dangerous. In verse 14, Jude mentions the judgment coming on these end-time heretics, these false prophets. He says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them all of who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, when the Lord comes with his saints to execute judgment. But notice who he quotes. This is what's interesting. He says, this was all written or spoken of by Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam. Now, this phrase... The seventh from Adam can really date a fella. (laughs) The seventh from Adam means that you lived a long, long time ago. But it amazes me. Look at what the seventh from Adam is preaching. What's he preaching? The second coming of Jesus Christ. He was warning the world that one day the Lord would appear with His saints and vent His wrath on this wicked world. I think that's interesting. In Jude 20, the letter turns from warning to encouragement. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Here's the key to living the Christian life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, stay under the spout where the blessings come out. And Jude gives us three steps to keeping ourselves in the love of God. Build up your faith. 
Pray in the Holy Spirit and look for the coming, the mercy of our Lord Jesus. And in verses 22 and 23, Jude describes for us two types of evangelism. He says, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. You see, some people respond to the love and the kindness of God. It's His goodness that leads them to repentance, whereas other people need the hell scared out of them. Just that simple. It reminds me of the New York cabbie and the pastor. Both of them died. They went to heaven at the same time, and they were sitting in the lobby when the angel walked in, and he took the cab driver all around heaven, gave him the deluxe tour while the pastor had to wait. And of course, the pastor was really ticked off. And he told the angel, I've faithfully served the Lord all these years. Why does a New York cabbie get special treatment over me? And the angel answered him and he said, well, yes, you were faithful. But that New York cab driver scared the hell out of far more people than you ever did. (laughs) And that's the idea here in Jude. There are some people that are so lodged in sin that it just takes some good old-fashioned fear to shake them up. They need a little hellfire and damnation preaching every now and then. They need to understand that hell is a reality. That they need to be scared of going to hell. I am. I hope you are. I want... I, that's. Hey, I love Jesus and I'm glad He loves me. And, but I'll tell you, a big motivating factor for me becoming a Christian was not to go to hell. There's nothing wrong with that. You'd be stupid not to be motivated by that. Jude closes with a doxology, or in essence a praise song. Verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You know, temptation is a very powerful force. And the tempter is so deceptive. And the world and its evil is so pervasive. And when we look at what we're up against, how can any of us be confident that we'll still be living for the Lord next week? or next month, or next year. Well, here's why we can be confident. It's because God is able to keep us from stumbling. Did you hear what Jude said? He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Hey, we are weak. On our own, we are not able to keep ourselves from stumbling. But Jesus is able. He is able to keep us. And He will keep you if you trust in Him.